0: hi it's wednesday so according to the schedule they're keeping me on i have to do a yard site talk today about some famous person trouble is it's slim pickings this week even though Chaim sent me a bunch of names so i didn't like who i saw on the list so i just opened up another site right there for the month of outdoor and the first name i came across was one that really impacted with me and that's what i'll talk about today that's somebody you probably never heard of Azaria Figo, Rabbi Azaria Figo, um, who was a big rabbi in Italy, in late 1500s, early 1600s. Again, I know you don't, most of you don't know who I'm uh, speaking about, uh, but I do. This is somebody I don't know why, but for some reason, for decades, I found it very interesting, a very interesting personality, and uh, I was drawn to this long ago. I don't, not sure myself why, but uh, he, the, the first paper I did in graduate school was on the Zaria Figo. So let me describe what I'm talking about. There's, here's a case of a very interesting person, a, a great rabbi, who was in Italy in the late 1500s, early 1600s. And most people don't know anything about the Jews of Italy, why would you? But it's a very complicated and very fascinating situation. And he was born and lived a long time in Venice. Most of us don't think of Venice necessarily as a big Jewish center. You've heard of the ghetto there, but you're probably not aware that long ago Venice was one of the main Torah, believe it or not, uh, in the world. At the same time that Venice was like Vegas, you know, like Caesar's palace. It was a wild and crazy uh, geisha place. But it's true that there was a big, important Jewish not a big, not large, but a very important Jewish community there. And here's somebody from that background. The Jews of Italy from long ago are an extremely interesting group because they're very variegated. Italy did not exist as a country. That only started in the 1870s. Until then, what you look on the map of Italy was like 10, 12 different countries. There was the Kingdom of Naples in the south and the Papal States in the middle. I don't have to give you the whole business. But in the upper right-hand corner, what we call the Northeast, was something called the Republic of Venice, which means the city of Venice that I know you've heard about with the canals and no streets, all no water. But that city was a powerful uh, force once upon a time and conquered and ruled an entire area of Italy, a province called Venetia, uh, which is a very important strategic place and was very prosperous and, uh, believe it or not, it was a small place and it was powerful once upon a time. And they didn't like the Jews at all, but they had Jews there. And Venice has the first ghetto. Now, the Jews of Italy especially in the time that I'm speaking about Azaria uh, Figo, or Picho, I should say. Really, we all call him Azaria Figo because if you look in Hebrew, it's Azaria uh, and then Fe, Yud, Gimel, Vav. So the average guy says Figo. Really, it's a Spanish name because he's a Sephardi, and there's a town in Spain called Picho. But who needs to know that? Anyway, uh, at that time, there were five different Jewish communities in, uh, in Italy and most of Italy. I mean, Totally different Jewish communities, all of them tiny, and each one has its own shul, and its own minhagim, its own basden, and things like that. You got your Ashkenazic Jews. Believe it or not, the majority of Jews in Italy, once upon a time, were Ashkenaz. They moved from Germany, like in the 12, 1300s, 1400s, south into North Italy, and they set up whole communities there. The first Jews in Venice were Ashkenazic Jews. Second of all, you had the Italian Jews, the Italiani. But that's just the Jews from Rome who've been there forever since, I don't know, Julius Caesar. And they're not Ashkenaz, and they're not far. They do their own thing. They have their own Minhagim and their own siddur, and their own mahtzer, and even their own gedolim long, long, long ago, although they weren't particularly famous for being big and learning. But Jews in Rome and places like that have been there for a long time. And small groups of them formed Cahillus and communities throughout Italy as well. So if you went through Italy in the time I'm talking about, in many, many places, you'll see a small Jewish community with two shoals. <laughs> one in Ashkenaz, and one Italiani. That's one thing. I'm not finished. Then you got three types of Sephardim. Chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry. You have what they call the Levantine Jews, and the what you call the Ponentine Jews. That's how the Italians used to call it. And here we, herein lies the story. Once upon a time long ago, before 1492, the Sephardim were not anywhere except in Spain. That's why they're called Sephardim. So, notice the Turkish Jews at that time were not Sephardim. The Syrian Jews, the Egyptian Jews, the Iraqi Jews, and so forth, they're not Sephardim. They're their own thing. They're Middle Eastern Jews, right? They have nothing to do with Sephardim. After 1492, things changed because the Sephardim were kicked out of Spain and they had to go somewhere. And many of them went to these countries I just described. Syria, Turkey, Egypt, and so forth. And they had fights with the locals, and they took over. They said, we're the Sephardim guys, we're moving in. We now to learn better than you. Which was true. And uh, they imposed cultural imperialism. They imposed their uh, Sephardic ways upon the locals. Married the local girls. Next thing you know, everybody's Sephardic. Really, they aren't. Only the Spanish Jews who moved there are Sephardim. But it came Sephardic eyes. And so... Of these groups, they many Jews, let's put it this way, many Jews moved from Spain after 1492 and ended up settling in what we call the Ottoman Turkish Empire, which was the big Muslim empire of the 15, 16, 17, and 1800s, and ruled what we called the Middle East and even a third of Europe. I'll say it again, a third of Europe. In the 1500s, the Ottoman Turkish Sultan, the emperor, captured Hungary. That's how big the Turkish Empire was once upon a time. And these are Sephardic Jews, uh, they're the Frum ones. they didn't stay behind in Spain, they did not convert, they're not Moranos. they took the hard plunge, they left and gave up all their wealth and possessions in 1492, and they suffered terribly on the way, until they finally reached their destination, a lot of them got killed and were tortured. So these were called the Sephardim Tahorim, they talk Ladino, and they live in places like Istanbul, and Constantinople, and Aleppo, and Alexandria. And, and a number of these types moved to Italy, especially uh, Venice, but for business reasons, because Italy is in the middle, if you look at the map, is in the middle between east and west and in the middle between north and south. And so from a commercial point of view, that's a place you want to set up a branch of your business. So, is, so if you went to Venice or many other places, you'd see, in addition to the Ashkenazi shoal, in addition to the Italiani show you're going to see something called the Sephardi show the Ponentine shoal. And that would be a Ladino-speaking type, you know, uh, uh, Sephardim the way we see it usually today. But I'm not done. In addition to that, you have another type of Sephardim, which we call the Spanish-Portuguese Jews, the, Pon- the uh, Ponentine Jews. And that means that there are two sets of Jews that end up in Italy, not by going first through the Turks or through the uh, Ottoman Empire, but moving from spain directly to italy but there are two groups a and b the first group were the Frummies that i said before who gave up everything and were very uh you know loyal to judaism and instead of going in 1492 to the middle east they ended up going to italy they settled in rome believe it or not the borgia popes took them in that's the truth and some others and some of them ended up in venice that's one group and then separate from that there's another group And these are what we would call the Moranos, the Anusim. And they're the Jews who stayed behind in 1492. And uh, actually, most of them converted and stayed Christian. But some of them went to Portugal. And without going to Holoriches, by the time the story's over, they ran away from the Inquisition. And they end up over the next couple hundred years. That's right. From 1492 to 1792, approximately. Sneaking out whenever they have a chance to sneak away from the Inquisition. And running away to Italy, they ran away to other places. But I'm talking about the group that went, ran away to Italy. And so if you follow what I just said, not that you need to, then you if you went to Venice in the late 1500s, during the lifetime of a figo you'd see at least five shoals of five different Cahillus with five different styles. You'd see a Ashkenaz shoal. You'd see Italiani shoal. You'd see... Sephardi shul of the Levantine type, the the Ladino-speaking people from Turkey and uh, Salonica and places like that and then you'd see another shul, actually you'd see four synagogues, you'd see a Spanish-Spanish shul, that is to say the Jews who went straight from Spain and in that shul they speak Spanish, they don't speak Ladino. Now that shul would be composed of two elements, the Frumis who ran away there in 1492 and afterwards, that's one group, and the second group would be in that community would be the Muranos, who here and there somehow or other escape from Spain or from Portugal and end up in Venice. Or perhaps in another city, you know, Ancona and Livorno and Rome, but I'm talking about Venice over here. And that's the very cosmopolitan and fascinating community of Venice once upon a time long ago. And there was also a Malcolm Teller over there, because Venice, as I said before, was really the capital of a state, of an entire province... And one of the places in the the province of Venice was a city called Padua, a very beautiful city. We were there on one of my trips. And Padua had a a world-famous university, and one block away from the world-famous university was a world-famous yeshiva and and a ghetto. It's true. Not many people are aware that Padua, like the Volosian once upon a time of Italy, and I mean that, for a couple hundred years because it was a father, son, grandson, great-grandson, that kind of thing, as the Rosh Hashivas. You've probably heard of the Maran Padua. That's the name that would be familiar to you, possibly. The Rosh Hashiva in uh, Padua. So Venice is not so far away, and therefore Venice has the hashpa of Padua. So it's a city of all kinds of Jews, including from and including Talmud HaChemim. And it's also true that a lot of people wanted to visit Venice, especially rabbis who wanted to get their books published because Venice is the most famous city for early Hebrew printing. The Gemara, perhaps you know, was published in Venice in the 1520s. And so Venice was a hot place. Now, Zaria Figa was from Sephardi Variety too. His family ran away in 1492, but they went straight to Italy. So they're from Sephardim, they don't talk Ladino. They speak Spanish, and they're Orthodox Jews. But what we would call today, um, how should I put it? right-wing YU, that's how i would say it they were definitely modern but they're definitely from obviously and when he was born and grew up his family was a uh integrated italian spanish jewish family and he was given by his parents a good hebrew education and a good secular education the hebrew education in italy is very interesting because at that time they didn't do it the Yeshivshia style which all these Gadon like the morale were complaining about, elsewhere, in which there's no curriculum, no order. You learn a little uh, Hebrew, then you learn a little and Rashi, a little, then go all your way to Gemara, and before you know it, you're trying to figure out Tosas. This is the old system that went on for hundreds and hundreds of years and uh, produced all kinds of interesting individuals. In Italy, they were more influenced by the Ganyam, and therefore they believed in something called a school with grades and a curriculum and report cards. I kid you not. It's all from... So, the Italian Jews had a Frum Haskalah, if I can use that term. And uh, one of the things they emphasized was, first you learn how to read and write Hebrew, then you learn your diktuk very well, then you learn how to write letters and things like that in correct Hebrew, and then eventually you move to Chumash, and then eventually you move to Chumash Rashi, and then eventually you move to Mishnayis, and then eventually you move to Gemara, you know, that, that kind of system. And he came up in that system, and his parents wanted him, like all Jewish parents, they wanted their son to be a doctor... And so, um, at a young age, he's on a college prep course, and I'm serious, and he um, is getting ready to go to the University of Padua, because the University of Padua is not far away, and it was the only university for hundreds of years that allowed Jews to enroll as students there. The other universities, being very Christian, uh, wouldn't allow any Jew in. Padua was also very Christian, but they had more liberal ideas in this particular regard, and he's going to be a doctor. Let me tell you something. A lot of big rub on him. And post him in Italy in the 14, 15, 16, 1700s, people who rode this farm, South and Subas, were college grads. They had MDs from the University of Padua. It's a very, it's an unknown but very interesting uh, chapter in Jewish history. And that's what he would do. So as I say before, right-wing Y.U. He'll get a smicha of some kind or another or, you know, something to that effect. He'll get an M.D., because after all, that's the only college course anybody wants to take in the 1500s. You know, you're not going to do too much with a Ph.D. in philosophy or history in uh, the 16th century if you're Jewish. But an M.D., obviously, you can set up a practice. But right in the middle, as happens sometimes in right-wing Y.U. families, he had a change of heart, he tells us. And he said, I abandoned my girlfriend and went to my true love. That's his language i I dropped out of college prep and went straight back to Yeshiva because he liked learning and he threw himself into that uh, It's a very famous uh, passage often quoted in the Jewish history uh, books of um, you know uh original documents and quotations and so here you have just an interesting type of person and he interacts with uh the rabbis in Venice and others and because he wanted to go the yeshiva route. So he even left Venice to go to, how should I put it, to go, not to Lakewood, he didn't go to, to Padua, that would be like going to Lakewood, but he went to a chashiv yeshiva outside of, New, uh, uh, of Venice, in Gorizia, you never heard of it, it's in the northern part of Italy today, where there was a big common chacham, the Shalzen was Ber Sheva, Islandberg, and he learned there for a while, so this guy's really into learning, and he put in the time, he plugged away. Now, you have to understand, at that time, Italy is a weird place, because Italy is um, under the Catholic Church, and in the 1500s, not long before his birth, the Catholic Church, for a certain number of reasons, went nuts over Hebrew books, and burned them all. They burned all the Gemaras. they prohibited anybody from using the Gomorrahs, other farm it got really, really tough. And the result was that there was a dearth of Swarm. Somehow or other, obviously, the Jews managed to Wiggle around it, but it wasn't so easy. It was not easy at all. And they had to get special permission from, from the Pope and change the cover page of some Gemara's and call it a riff. There's a some I said involved with all these sort of things. But I'm simply pointing out it wasn't so simple to learn, even if you had the Chesha to learn in Italy in those centuries. But he did. And when he was in his 20s, he, I don't know why, but he got lucky. He got a, a, a rabbinical position. He got smicha and he got a stellar. In Pisa, you like the Leaning Tower of Pisa? And Pisa was uh, one of the two communities. This is in the early 1600s. Uh, he's born in 1579, and now at this time, I think he was in 1606 or something like that. Uh, and here, in, or I said that wrong a little bit later, when he, when he was in, in his late 20s. But whatever the year was, he uh, is in now one of the few, few, few communities in Italy in which the Jews are treated relatively more easy. In the time he lived in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, the Jews of Italy had it really rough, worse than elsewhere, because the Catholic Church, as part of its reaction to the Protestant Reformation, cracked down on laxity in the Church, and unfortunately for the Jews, their collateral damage, one of the things they cracked down on was not enforcing fully all the anti-Jewish laws that are on the books and the Catholic laws. And to use plain English, that is when they set up the ghettos. Before that, you could live wherever you want. After 1550s, all over Italy, uh, just about, the Jews have to live in a special quarter in town, usually it's the most unhealthy place. It's like living in a certain jail. Uh, Life was tough. They denied the Jews the right to practice business. The Jews could only engage in these very unhealthy, I mean, physically unhealthy pursuits, you know, with the pillows, I forget what it was, and grinding lenses. So the life expectancy was low. It was a very bad time. And uh, that's when he lived. The only exception to that bad picture was in Tuscany, which is north of Rome. And that's the Leaning Tower of Pisa. There was a Jewish community in Pisa. And the Grand Duke of Tuscany, the, the, the Geisha ruler over there, one of the Medici, had a big need for money. Who doesn't? And he took a very uh, Ronald Reagan-type approach. And he basically said like this, uh, I'm going to make an economic free zone. So I'm going to declare Pisa and the nearby port of Livorno to be two cities in which anybody can move there. As long as you pay your taxes, we won't ask what your religion is. We won't ask where you came from. We won't ask, are you an ex-con or anything like that. And just follow your Yetzirah and pursue business and let capitalism flourish. No labor unions. No laws telling you what you can and can't do. The only law that counts is prosper and then give half to the government or something like that. And so this is an opportunity to choose if they're able to, took. Because one of the consequences of what I just said was there's no ghetto. So you can be Jewish and live wherever you want in the city. And you can actually move around and engage in any kind of commerce you want. This was unheard of in Italy. And so it was a community about 600, 700 Jews most of whom were Sephardim, the type that he came from, the Spanish Spanish Jews. And he got got to be the rabbi there. I won't say it's a very from community. I won't say it's a community where anybody knew anything. It was not. And so here you have a guy who's really into learning. He loves this kind of stuff. He belongs in B'nai Brock. He belongs in Lakewood, no question about it. You know, talking and learning with his neighbor, that's who he is. And he stuck out in Hicksville. You know, in like, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, what should I say? Uh, southern Georgia or some place like that on the coastline in which there are Jews but there's nobody knows it's intellectual desert and he can't stand being an intellectual desert on the other hand needs a job and so he what he does over the next 20 years is he throws himself into as much learning as he can on his own it's very hard to do that there are no gemaras they're all illegal and so he has like three vo- I'm serious he has about three volumes that he sort of stashed away and he has a friend here 50 miles away here, and another one there 25 miles away there. And this guy has another volume of the Gemara, and that guy has another volume of the Gemara. And he sets himself a grand task to write a commentary, a lumdisha commentary, no less, on the Sefer, and none of you have ever even heard of the Sefer Atrumas, which was a Sefer written at the time of the Ramban by a friend of the Ramban uh, who corresponded with the Ramban. So we're talking about the 1200s. And this book, my friends, is the original Chosha Mishpat. The laws about money. Uh, you know, loans and wills and states and, uh, you know, partnerships and contracts and all the sorts of things that we normally associate with Chosha Mishpat. As a matter of fact, the Sefer HaTrumas, which is written by a rabbi from Sardinia, believe it or not, <laughs> if there are any Jews in Sardinia today, Shmuel Asardi, and uh, this was the first Sefer to put together in, or the second safer, but the most important safer that put together all the laws of money matters uh, in one uh, volume. 100 years later, it was used as the model by the person that wrote the tour, the Torah. That's the original Shulchan Aruch. So the only difference is the first guy called it Safer Trumos, and the second one called it Chosha Mishpat. So we've all heard of the second name. But it's covering like the same ground. So here's a fundamentally important safer if you're into that. And remember, He's a rabbi in Italy in the 1500s, so they have basins, and they have a certain amount of autonomy, and they do take these business cases, choshem mishpat cases, to be judged by the rabbi, or at least he wants them to. I don't know if they do or not, but he wants to be up on his up to speed, and that means he has to be maayan, as we would say, in the choshem mishpat type of things, and uh, so he devotes himself, you know, year after year, to writing on this subject, uh, going through every sugya that he can get his hands on. That's connecting the Sefer Atrumos, uh bringing down all the other Mefarshim that he's able to find out about the classic Roshonim, the very early Achronim, and be in them. And it's extra; it's, it's quite remarkable that someone does this on his own with no chavrusa, and he doesn't have a, a, a set of shas. And who knows what he has? I mean, any swarm. It's it's quite incredible. It's a it's a testimony to his uh, what's the right word? You know. His willing, his his Torah Shma, You know, he, he's really driven to do this. Uh, and it's and when the sefer finally was published, which was after he left Pisa, as we'll see in a minute, later in Venice, it made a big splash. It's very famous. The Shach in Vilna, who was young at that time, heard about it. And he was writing a Choshen Mishpah, and he ordered a copy at great expense. And he went crazy when he got it. He threw a party. Uh, the sefer he wrote was called Gedule Truma. So now the original sefer is called the Sefer Trumas. And Azaria Figo writes a commentary called, on it called uh, Gedule Truma. And this sort of, you know, hit the Lundisha world, as it says. But by that time, 20 years had passed, and finally he got out of the desert. His own community in Venice, where he grew up, called him back to be the rabbi, or the uh, darshan, as we would say, the preacher for the Spanish synagogue. Not the guys from the Ladino speaking from Turkey, you know, from those places. Not those Sephardim, but the Spanish Sephardim, the ones who came straight from Spain to Venice. And uh, here he spent the next 20 years, last years of his life, actually, died in his late 60s, acting as the rabbi and mainly the Darshan over there. And he composed these uh, sermons, drushos, that really put him on the the front map. Uh, This is what really made him famous. Because... He was a genius at oratory, and he dealt with a very high-class synagogue in the economic sense. He's dealing with Sephardim from Spain, many of them, as I say, Muranos, who were millionaires, who gave up all kind of stuff and reestablished themselves business-wise in Italy, who, many of whom had a good secular education back in Spain and Portugal before they moved here. Others just simply kept up the Spanish culture and they knew a lot of what we would call today European culture and Lemur And so you can't just plopple for an audience like this. You can't just drop a Dvartar and on, you know, say a Shtickle, uh, <laughs> a art. You have to have a high-end, high-class uh, drusha over there. Now, they didn't give every Shabbos, but they gave it fairly often. And so what he did was he compar- carefully constructed and collected these drushas. You can be sure they were given in Spanish, but he wrote them in Hebrew. But I told you before, he had a school education. He learned Hebrew correctly. The Diktok, the Malitzah, as we would say today, the poetry, and the right way to express yourself. And he collected all these droshas, or many of them, uh, in a safer that he divided into 14 parts for different times of the year. ace like Shlomo Melch says in the uh, Kohelis, And he called it Bin That is this say he's putting a lot of bina, a lot of thought and wisdom into the different times of the year, and uh, what shall I say? He died in his late 60s. He had a difficult personal life because were, in those days, you can imagine what public health was like. It didn't exist because they got the medicine all wrong. And Venice, being between one place and the other, got hit with plagues all the time. So did Baltimore. I mean, uh, you know, if you go back long ago, you were just a walking corpse sooner or later because some uh, gave is going to hit here or there. And, you know, his kids died in one, and he eventually died in another. It's a whole long, sad story. But here's the point I want to get across. Uh, After he died, his students published. It was ready to go for a publication at the time he died. They published The Bean Will Eat Him. It took off. This became the number one cheater book for rabbis for the next couple hundred years. The book was reprinted in Eastern Europe 55 times. There's no safer like that. You understand? Now, why was it reprinted all the time? Every rabbi needs to steal material for a drasha. Somebody once said this book could be called uh, Mayim Gnuvim, Stolen Waters, because hundreds and hundreds of rabbonim in Poland, Lithuania, Russia, and Germany, and Hungary, and the Sephardim, all stole material from it, because it's that good, and they would give it over like their own material, and then you sound really chashev to your balabat, you sound like you know something. And uh, I guess that's a testimony of a certain type to the brilliance of the work, and I can tell you, just my own personal opinion, that's all you ever get, that's really great. I found this book like 30 years ago, 35 years ago, and it's really caught my interest, because he has a certain style, first of all, the Hebrew is unbelievable, very high class, but un- but plain, in other words, uh, not male- you're not full of malices, it's, it's extremely direct, very well crafted, very well written, even though the speeches were in Spanish. And they're for all the different times of the year, so he's got stuff for Purim coming up, obviously, all the Yamim Tovim, and some other Sephardic-type days. They used to have special appeals for uh, charity and for maintaining the shivas. and he's got stuff on Pirkei Abbas. It's just really, really good. And his style, he's brilliant, is to take a subject, and first of all, you apply the old-fashioned way. You probably don't know what I'm talking about. In old-fashioned drush, what you do is you start with a Pusik or a mimer Chazal, and then you just ask questions on it. And that's your uh, springboard for presenting your ideas. You know, Bracey's borrow. Why does it say bracious? Why did it say Ratius? Or something like, oh, now you have a question. I give an answer and let's go off and it could have nothing to do with Bracey's. But that was your starting point. And he strings together several dozen of these Psukim or Maimar Chazals in a very nice way. And in each one, he'll start asking the questions why did it say this? Why did it say that? And he will explain it by giving a highly original interpretation. Excuse me, you never heard it before, of this Pusik, or this Gemara, or this Medrash, or something like that. And then with that new idea that he just presented to you, he moves on to the next stage of the sermon, which he carefully crafted. It's all going to a certain end. And so he will explain to you, in a very lofty and fancy way, why one Rabbi shafted the other Rabbi in that famous party uh, on Purim. You know, and what does it mean, and why did it happen? And uh, he will explain this Pirkei passage in a very wonderful way, based on a close reading of the words and a fine feel for the language, but also a very lofty idea. And so, by the time it's over, as I said before, you didn't just hear some dvartor and the velteron; you heard a, a masterpiece. And it's and he it hit over run. What can I tell you? Unfortunately, he died; he didn't get to see the book take off. But as they said, it's up there. I've been speaking about a genre of literature most people are not familiar with. That's called the drush literature, and I guess if you're not a rabbi, why would you need to know about it? But rabbis and Rabbi wannabes have been, you know, looking at this literature for hundreds of years. Nowadays in America, the vast majority of people, those that are listening and those not listening, i no idea what I'm talking about. There's a whole branch out there of these sfarim over the ages. And uh, some are better, and some are worse. Everybody who knows anything about this literature knows that there are three masterpieces. One is the Vinalitim that I just described. One is Ravionus and Abishus Devash. And the third one is from the uh, Ola Safraim, from what you know is the Kleoker. These are the classic cheater books of all time. Fortunately for me, nobody knows about this, so I could quote them at length, and, you know, sounds like I know what I'm talking about. Although I'm... Um, <laughs> Thank God I'm honest enough to tell where I got it from. i got to tell you a story. Um, but before I do that, I just want to say this was a crazy period in Jewish history. He has shouts and chubas that are not published, but they appear here and there. And just to give you an idea of the nutty nature of the times, there was a question that went along the following lines. Just listen to this. There's a father who's in Italy. He had two sons he left behind back in Spain. He went Moranos. They ran away. Uh, one son is a priest. Uh, But secretly, he's Jewish or something like that. And the other son uh, ran away from Spain and now lives in Rome. And he's a businessman. and And he has business connections with machers inside the Vatican. So, the brother who's in Rome, who's a practicing Jew, has the ability, the power, to influence this and this cardinal to get his brother in Spain appointed to be an archbishop. Is that mutter? Where are you going to find... Where are you going to find a Shiloh like that? You asked that to Ramosha Feinstein yesterday. It was a crazy period because you had the Muranos, you had family breakups, you had situations where people find themselves in unusual uh, circumstances, and here you are, Zarya Figo or some other rabbi in Italy, deal with it, what's the halacha? So, I just want to say it was a crazy time, but I'll close with this story, because I've spoken too long anyway, but this is a subject I can go on for another three hours. Um a number of years ago i was in venice with a you know, i led a jewish history group there you know i do this tour sometimes and my travel agent arranged that then on shabbos we should be able to go into the spanish show where he was the rabbi the physical show where he was a rabbi uh an hour or something like that before mincha the local jews aren't there anyway yet and i can give a talk to my group and for me, if you know who I am, that was like a real treat, because I got to stand on the literal pulpit, you know, the bimah, where Azari Figo was four or 500 years ago, and I brought with me the Sefer, and I said, I'm going to, just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, I'm going to give you over a speech that he gave here in this shul, you know, 400 years ago, 500 years ago, uh, more or less word for word. And I, f- I forget what the drusha was, I think it had something to do with circus, but I don't remember anymore. And if you know anything about Italy and these countries, you have to have full-time security. The terrorism is nuts over there. So they have uh, Israeli security guards there 24-7. They got Italian police there during services. And so the is empty except for these Israeli security guards who are not from. And as I said before, I had my group of, what, 20, 25 people. And I and I started going through from the pulpit, you know, from the high uh, bimba and the old the Spanish, the Shole uh, Española, as they call it, the Spanish synagogue, where Figa was, and I was saying over to drasha. the Israeli security guard was listening, he came in, and then the next security guard came in, and one told the other, and the whole group's coming in, because they're fascinated, not by me, but by the content. Then the Italian Jews start coming in from Mincha, and same thing, they're all sitting down there, so by the time we're finished, we had a ganze crowd, and Again, it's not me, I'm saying over, it's not my material, I'm saying over from, from the beatle Tim. And when it's over, the president of the community of the shul came and says, wow, does, you're some speaker, it's amazing ideas. I said, it's not me, it's a rabbi who was in this shul. He said, when was this? I said, Azariah Azari Pichel, 300, 400 years ago in, in the 1600s. He said, we do not know our own history. He says, maybe somebody should teach us about there, because we're sitting on a gold mine, we don't know anything about it. That my friends is uh, really the truth. So I leave with this message. If you're a Lamden, you might want to take a look at the safer uh Gedule Truma, but if you're in Khosh Mishra, if that turns you on. But if you're not, if you know Hebrew a little bit, then uh you want a Khappais, your your local Orthodox rabbi, get a hold of the safer Binalitim. There's a new edition that's very nice, last 30 years. And uh try to work your way through one of those drushes. Now it's coming up, Purim, and afterwards it's Pesach. You got plenty of material on Purim and Pesach, and the uh, Svirs Omer. And I think you will come out a more well rounded and, and culturally enriched Jew in the Torah sense. And if that's so, then this will be a tribute to his yard site. And boy, I've gone too far over time, but I think this subject was worth it. Bye.